0: Disciples of Jesus, we are in, engaged in the spiritual war. It's a war that has raged since our first parents were in the, the Garden of Eden. It affects every area of our lives. It is a war which cannot be avoided. There is no foxhole or bunker or a neutral country where we can retreat to and not be involved in the war. This spiritual war is one we were ultimately a part of even before we came to know Jesus Christ, but once we came to Christ as our Savior, that was in so many ways like enlisting in the army to be a good soldier for Christ, to fight the war going on around us. We are naturally a part of this war. There's nothing we can do. We don't have to actually do anything. We are just a part of it by the virtue of being the children of Almighty God, being redeemed of Christ. But not only are we naturally a part of the war, there are actions we can take which will increase the intensity of our spiritual battles, actions like trying to move forward, following Jesus, will increase the intensity of our battles. Uh, seeking to make changes in our lives for for Christ's sake will increase the intensity of our battles. Making what we might would say a, a, even a minor compromise with our enemy will increase the intensity of our spiritual battles. And the battle can rage at times with such intensity. That we feel overwhelmed, we feel unable to keep going. So what do we do in that moment? What do we do when the battles we face are more than we can handle and may be at least partially our fault? The Israelites faced a dilemma as they continued to move forward and we have much to learn from their response. So as I said, we're in Joshua 10. The title of the message today is Fighting to Move Forward. And and it's probably going to be fighting to move forward for the next several weeks because what we're going to do is have a sort of a series within a series. As we look at all of Joshua 10 and all of Joshua 11, it's all going to deal in some way with spiritual warfare. That's the main battles they're fighting here. And after that, the battles are largely won. So we're going to talk about spiritual warfare for quite a bit in the next several weeks. Today, we're just going to look at the first 27 verses uh, of Joshua 10. So look at verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass when Adonai, the king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai, and he had utterly destroyed it, and he had, as he had done to Jericho and their king, so he did to Ai and to her king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. And they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, as one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, all the men thereof were... Mighty. Wherefore, Adonisa, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Hoham, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jarmuth, and unto Japhia, the king of Lachish, and unto Debir the king of Eglon, saying, Come unto me and help me, that, way we, that we may smite Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the Israelites. Therefore, the five kings the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, the kings of Hebron, the kings of Jarmuth, the kings of Lachish, kings of Eglon, gathered themselves together. And went up, they and all their hosts, and encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. Fear of the Israelites and probably feelings of betrayal directed at Gibeon led these five kings to come together as a united army to attack Gibeon. Now one of the primary reasons for going to attack Gibeon was because it was not a little podunk village like Ai. Instead, it was a a major city, kind of like a capital city, and all the men of that city were mighty warriors. And so they would make a valuable ally to Israel and they would make a potent enemy against them. And so they they come together and they move out to go and attack Gibeah. Now, the lesson for us here is that there will always be opposition for anything we seek to do for Jesus. This is especially true if we're trying to move forward following Jesus. Now, granted, they're moving forward. It is an invasion. So it's bound to have some pushback. But would this coalition have formed and this attack be happening if when they came into the land they conquered Jericho and just settled down? If they had just calmed down and stopped and all went in there and stayed around there, what do you think would have happened? Do you think the rest of the kings would have come against them or would they have said, oh well, I didn't like Jericho that much anyway and just let them be? I think they probably would have just let them be. But it was the fact they were continually moving forward. They were coming for them. They knew that. These other kings knew Israel was coming for them. And so they formed a coalition and the attack against Israel was imminent. But they started by attacking allies Israel had made. Now, for our lives, moving forward following Jesus in so many ways is also an invasion into enemy territory. Scripture tells us Satan is the God of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers so they will not see their need for Jesus. Scripture also tells us that there are people who are in the snare of the devil who have been taken captive by Satan to do His will. And a big part of what we do as we seek to move forward following Jesus is to shine the light of the gospel to those who have been blinded by Satan so they will see their need for Jesus. They will repent of their sins and they will turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. A big part of what we do as we seek to move forward is help release the captives. To go to those who are taken captive by Satan and try to help them to be free. These are hostile actions. And this is an invasion into enemy territory. And our enemy is not going to take this lying down. And he's not going to take this lightly any more than Joshua's enemy did. We can expect the enemies of our soul. And the enemy of all the souls of mankind. To take our invasions. Our seeking to move forward personally. And fight back. But another lesson we learn in this is. Our enemy doesn't always necessarily come directly at us does he? He didn't, they didn't start off by going against Israel. First they went to the nation, or the city nation, Israel had formed a bond with. And so many times what will happen is the enemy attacks us by attacking those who are close to us. We seek to move forward and to, to stop our forward momentum. The enemy attacks our spouse, or he'll attack our, our children, or our grandchildren or our parents or our siblings or a close friend or our employer or a coworker or someone we've been trying to reach for Jesus or someone we just helped come to know Christ someone we're helping to disciple you get the idea we have to be prepared for this our seeking to move forward is going to in some ways endanger everyone Around us. Because the enemy is not necessarily going to come full frontal at us. Because we might be prepared. We might be able to repel an attack against us. But attack my loved one. And that could weaken me significantly more than just attacking me. Attack my children. Attack my wife. Attack my parents. And that may have far more of an impact to slow me down and stop my forward momentum than it would if I was just attacked personally. We have to expect pushback if we're going to try to move forward following Jesus. And the pushback could be significant and large. Right again, these are five kings have come together against the nation of Israel. They are significantly outnumbered. Once they find out about this, they may wonder, oh my goodness, what can I do is, is, there any way we can fight this? And in some ways, you could say that they're having to fight this coalition, is their fault. because had they not made an alliance with Gibeah, then it wouldn't have mattered if those kings went and killed them. It's one less battle for them to fight. We have to expect opposition to our decisions to move forward, and we can't expect the enemy will fight fair. So the enemy attacks Gibeon, moves to attack. And the Gibeonites respond. Men of Gibeon, verse 6, sent unto Joshua to the camp of of Gilgal, saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and the mighty men of Valor. So part of a treaty is that you help us in a battle. Not only you don't kill us, but you, you help us in a time of need. So now Gibeah is surrounded by five armies. They send a messenger to Joshua. Keep your word, bro. It's time to come and to fight for us. Now Joshua, as you can see, there appears to be no hesitation in, in Joshua's response. He gathers the forces and he begins to move out. Now here's why I find that interesting. How did, how did Joshua end up in this treaty? It was through deception, wasn't it? I mean, they, they tricked Joshua into this treaty. What they had done was, was wrong, and Joshua was then bound by it. But Joshua doesn't say, oh well, play silly games, you win silly prizes. He, he didn't say, well, you're, you're getting what you deserve for being deceptive. He didn't say, well, you were actually our enemies to begin with, so I don't care. No, what he did was he rallied the troops and he went to help them, even though, at least if Joshua was like me, it would have had to have infuriated him to go and help them in this battle. A lesson for us is sometimes we have to help people even if they've wronged us you know Joshua's treaty was binding even though it was bound with it was founded upon deception that was part of the end of Joshua chapter 9 Joshua had given his word and if he was going to be a man of integrity he would have to do what he said he would do even if he didn't like it even if he didn't want to now i find this to be a hard thing i don't know how you are so i won't push my my failings upon you but I, I want to push back at the idea of helping people who have wronged me. right? I, I, don't, I don't mind helping those who help me or helping those who are neutral toward me. But if someone has actively wronged me, I don't want to be a help to them. I don't want to be there for them. And that's not a good thing. That's not a positive in my life. That is very much a, a failing of my character. And I'm going to hope that some of you feel my pain. That way I'm not just the worst person in the room today. But before we push back and say, well, yeah, that's right, we shouldn't help those who have wronged us. We have to consider the words of Jesus. Jesus said, you have heard that it had been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the children of your father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. This is our command to obey. This is our example to follow. And while this may rankle us, there, there are a couple of truths about the passage we ought to keep in mind. First is, Jesus hasn't really called us to live natural or normal lives. In fact, the very next words of Jesus are, are basically, he says, if you only love those who love you, and if you only do good to those who do good to you, then you're not really any different than a, than a publican who was considered to be the, the worst sort of sinner." Even the worst sort of sinners love those who love them. And even the worst sort of sinners will help those who help them. Someone, even anybody with even a moderately moral foundation for their lives can love someone who loves them. Someone with a a moderate moral foundation can, can do good for those who do good to them. But Jesus hasn't called us to be moderately moral human beings. Jesus hasn't called us to be normal and like everyone else. We don't need Jesus to love those who love us. We don't need Jesus to do good for those who do good for us. Jesus has called us to live beyond what we're able to do in the natural. He has called us to love those who hate us and do good for those who persecute us. We need Jesus to be this something more. We need Jesus to love those who hate us. We need Jesus to do good for those who actively oppose us. This is what we're called to live. This is how we're called to be. The lowest common denominator is not our standard. We are called to be like Jesus. And with this comes the second truth. Remember the value Jesus places on souls. Many times those who have wronged us and need our help are lost. And our willingness to help them may be what helps them cross the line into faith in Jesus. Loving those who hate us and doing good for those who actively oppose us so they might be saved is certainly following the example of Jesus who came and died for the sins of of the world. Jesus valued souls so highly, he cast off a measure of his glory and he came to earth and served people who hated him and rejected him and eventually murdered him. And he did this because he loved them despite their hatred of him. He did this because he valued their souls and wanted to help them be saved. This is our example to follow. This is what we're supposed to do. So if we're going to to move forward following Jesus, this has to be a part of how we move forward following Jesus. He is going to place people in our paths we need to help. People who are fainting at the struggles of life. People who are scattered about because they're sheep having no shepherd. People who in the end desperately Desperately need Him. And these people are not necessarily going to immediately like us, immediately appreciate us, or immediately be good to us. And if we respond like the average unbelieving person, we do nothing to commend Christ to them. We do nothing to tell them there is anything unique about Christ and what He does in our lives. We must be willing to help those who have wronged us. Because Christ has helped us despite the fact we have wronged Him. Now, as Joshua moves out, in verse 8, he gets a promise from God. The Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. Now, that's a a tremendous promise. I have to think God was giving him this promise because Joshua might have been a little bit afraid. Now, I know we don't often think about our heroes, the faith, being afraid. But why would God tell him to fear not unless he was a little bit afraid? I mean, think about what's going on here. Joshua is going to fight this battle. and, And it is a measure of his fault. He was the one. He's the main leader. He's the one who didn't seek the Lord. And say, are these Gideon, are these people telling me the truth? If he had just asked God, God would have told him, but he didn't. And now he has made an allegiance with the people of the land, which God said not to do. He is bound by it because he invoked God's name as a part of the process. And they've already seen it AI the first time around. God is not opposed to fighting against them if they're in the wrong. I can imagine Joshua thinking to himself, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know what God is going to do. Is God going to be for us? Because we're fighting with and fighting for people God initially told us to destroy. And so God comes to Joshua and says, Don't be afraid. My promises have not changed. My plans for you have not changed. I am going to give you such a decisive victory. Not a single enemy going to be able to stand against you throughout the entire battle. Now that that is a significant statement considering, again, it is five armies. And I would assume they are large armies. So Joshua marches to the battle and they went up from Gilgal all night and then they begin to attack. At verse 10, it says, The Lord discomfited them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them along the way that goeth up to Beth Horon, and smote them. To Azekah, all the way to Makkah. Now, the Lord discomfited the coalition forces. And the word discomfited is basically it tossed them into chaos. So what happened is Joshua and them march all night, they come upon them and they start attacking. God does something to launch these coalition forces into a, a series or into a, a, a fear and terror, and they began to flee. And so what you should see with the coalition forces is this massive, chaotic retreat. Right? It's not an organized retreat, follow me, we're going back this way. Instead, the bad guys are essentially just going everywhere. They're just trying to get away. And as the bad guys try to get away, Joshua and the forces continue to chase them and to fight them, but... As they fight, something amazing begins to happen. My glasses are, are smoky, and I can't see my Bible with them. But if I take them off, my eyes are so bad I can't see people's faces, if they're making faces at me or not. So I have to take them off and on. So they begin to fight, and it comes to pass, as the coalition forces fled before Israel and were going down to Beth horon that the Lord cast down great hailstones from heaven upon them unto Ezekiel, and they died. And there were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with a sword. So as the army retreats, Israel pursues and they pursue an attack. As they attack, suddenly hailstones begin to, to fall out of the sky and hit and kill people. But they're coming with a, a sniper's precision. They are only hitting and killing the coalition forces. Again, think how amazing this must be. Because if you have ever even watched a show with a sword fight, how close are you to have to stab somebody with a sword or a spear or hit them with a club? You're, you're really close. And yet, those hailstones are missing the Israelite here and hitting the bad guy there all across the camp. In fact, the slaughter goes on, the, the place from Gibeon to Makeda is about two miles. So for about two miles, the bad guys are are running and being stabbed and hit, and hailstones are falling out of the sky and taking them out. And what God's doing with the hailstones is so great that there are more who die from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with their swords and their clubs and their spears. I mean, can you can you just imagine what this must have looked like, what it must have felt like to be a part of this? Imagine for a second. You're a soldier in Israel's army. You march all night to battle. You launch into a surprise attack on the enemy and they begin to just flee. And as they flee, you pursue attacking all the way and then hailstones fall out of the sky and only hit them. They none of them ever hit you. None of them hit any of your comrades, any of your brothers in arms. Only these Amorites are being killed. Or imagine you're one of the Amorite soldiers. I mean, from what I can gather, this is pretty early in the morning, so they're they're just kind of waking up and starting their day. Suddenly an army busts out of the bush and starts chopping at them. And something makes them afraid and they begin to flee in panic. And as they're fleeing, the army's attacking them and then suddenly... Hailstones fall out of the sky and begin to to hit and kill people. But as you look, you realize they're only hitting and killing your people. Those who have marched all night and invaded your land and are being attacked and have attacked you, they are being missed. What a scene this must have been. Now, all of this takes time. The battle rages. It goes on. From what we see in verse 12, It looks like the, the sun was beginning to go down. And when the sun goes down, pretty much the battle ends in this day. They didn't fight at night too much. There was no night vision goggles or they didn't have flashlights they could hold. There was pretty much no way to, to light an area and swing a sword and hold a shield all at the same time. So since you couldn't be sure who you were hitting, who was hitting you, typically the battle ended when it was dark. Well, Joshua and the Israelites, they have this great advantage going on. God's raining down hailstones, they're stabbing people, the enemy's running, they're demoralized, they're afraid, they're being defeated. But if they have a night to get together and regroup, they can be encouraged, they can be, get strengthened, they can... Gather their their courage again to to go out and fight. And so, Joshua doesn't want them to do this. And so he he needs more sunlight. And so he goes out and he does something so bold, so audacious, it, it boggles the mind. It says in, in verse twelve that Joshua spake to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said, "Son," or he said in the sight of Israel, "Son, stand thou upon." Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Agilon. Now, that is a big thing. He, From what it appears, he says in the sight of all of Israel, so he steps out in front of everybody, and he cries out to the Lord to make the sun stop, to extend the daylight so they can continue to smite the bad guys. Now, that's a huge prayer. I mean, that, that's a big prayer. right? A person who prays that way truly believes their God can do anything. Right? That is a bold prayer. He did this in front of everyone. They can clearly see and hear Him crying out for the sun to stand still. If God doesn't do something, He is going to look like a complete moron. And it's a specific prayer. Joshua didn't say, God, do something. God, do something specific. Something specific and huge. As disciples of Jesus, we often say we believe our God can do anything. And yet the reality is very often we have wimpy prayer lives. We say we believe our God can do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or imagine, according to Ephesians 3.20, and yet we don't often pray like what we see here. I mean, think about what you pray for on a regular basis. How much of what we pray for on a regular basis is so big, if God doesn't do it, it will not happen. How much of what we pray for is so big that if it comes to pass, there is no way any earthly human can take credit for it. They just have to say this was a God thing and what God did it. How much of what we pray for on a regular basis are, are natural things which will likely come to pass without divine intervention? I mean, think with this. Think about things like we go on a trip, safe trip. Again, we pray for a safe trip every time we go, and I think we should, but most of us are typically going to have a safe trip, right? We pray, help me to get up in the morning." But the reality is, we're probably going to get up in the morning anyway, right? I mean, God can wake us up for sure, but it's not one of those things, if God doesn't do it, I'm not going to wake up in the morning unless I just die. How many of our prayer requests, regular prayer requests, are just things that would naturally happen even without God's intervention? Man, our, our prayer, if we believe... God can do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or imagine. Our prayer lives ought to be for things exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or imagine. Now, that doesn't mean we don't pray for the, these other things. We do. Sure, we pray for those things. That's not all we pray for. And we don't just pray for those things because God did a lot what, what Elijah, no, what Joshua asked. And the sun stood still. And the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. It's not written in the book of Jasher. So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. There was no day like it before or after the Lord hearkened the voice of mankind. For the Lord fought for Israel. God did exactly what Joshua asked him to do. He made the sun to stand still. He extended the daylight. So they could have complete victory over the coalition forces. By the time the sun goes down in verse 27 where we read the sun going down, they have won a complete victory over their enemies. A victory so massive, with things that have happened so big, it would not have happened apart from divine intervention. God's divine intervention would not have happened, though, apart from Joshua's prayer. You know, James 4.2 tells us, you have not because you ask not. Do we, do we really believe that's true? Do we believe we have not because we ask not? If we would say, yes, I believe Joshua or James 4.2 is true, then a follow-up question is, do I pray like it's true? Do I, I pray, do we pray like if we don't pray for it, it's not going to happen? Do we pray like what we are seeking, what we want God to do depends upon our prayers, or do we live and pray... Like God's going to do what God's going to do no matter what. One of my fears for our generation of Christians is we don't believe in the importance and the power of prayer. Now, we would never say this with our mouths, but we declare it with prayerless lives. I mean, when we don't pray, we're basically saying, My prayers don't matter. God's going to do what God's going to do no matter what. And if I believe that, if I really believe God's going to do what God's going to do and my prayers don't ultimately matter, then I won't pray for sun standstill kind of things. I, I won't pray for the lost to be saved because if they're going to be saved, God's going to save them anyway. I won't pray for the prodigals to be restored because if God's going to restore them, they're going to be restored anyway. I won't pray for the sick to be healed because if God's going to heal the sick, He's just going to do it anyway. I won't pray for the captives to be set free because if the captives are going to be set free, God's just going to do it anyway. I won't pray for people whose marriages I know are struggling for those marriages to be repaired because God's going to do what God's going to do. I won't pray for people whose hearts I know are broken, for those broken hearts to be mended, because well God's just gonna do what God's gonna do. My prayers don't ultimately affect that. So we don't pray diligently and desperately for these things. We don't pray diligently, desperately for our church and our community and our, our country, and on and on goes the list of things we don't pray diligently and desperately for. Because we have believed what is ultimately a satanic lie. God's going to do what God's going to do no matter what. Because if God's going to do what God's going to do no matter what, ultimately that means my prayers don't matter. Because God's going to do what God's going to do. And yet James 4.2 tells us we have not because we ask not. Do you believe God would have made the sun to stand still had Joshua not prayed for the sun to stand still? I don't. I don't. Because Scripture is filled with examples of God being ready and willing and able to do things, but not doing it because people didn't pray. We don't have time to look at it, but like Ezekiel 22, 30 and 31, Israel is in great rebellion. And God is about to send judgment upon them. And through Ezekiel, God says, I, I looked for a man would be standing in the gap. And making up the hedge for the people. So that I, I didn't have to pour out my wrath upon them. But finding none. He poured out his wrath upon them. What, what does that mean? It means. God wanted to spare them. God wanted to give mercy. Instead of his wrath and his justice. And he would have done it. Had anyone. Even one person. Been praying for God to spare Israel. But because no one prayed. God didn't. Spare them. There are no telling how many things in this world God wants to do, would do, can do, but won't do unless we pray for them. For whatever reason, God has chosen to work in this world through prayer. And I don't merely mean God works through prayer, but there are things, many things, what we see in Scripture that God would do and could do and wants to do but won't do apart from prayer. God's promises, like we see in Joshua 8, or Joshua 10 and verse 8, God's power, as we see in this passage, is necessary for us to be able to fight the battles and be able to move forward. But the fulfillment of God's promises and the experience of God's power is not necessarily automatic. We have to believe and we have to act. We have to pray and cry out for God to do what He said He would do through prayer. When the battles we face are more than we can handle, we must cry out to God to help and not shrug our shoulders and say, Oh well, God's gonna do what God's gonna do and go on. And one last reality in this passage is to notice all the hard work Joshua and the others put forth, right? So in verse eight, God gives them the promise. He's gonna not let a, a man stand before them. In verse nine, they they've marched all night and they've come upon it just. About daylight it seems. And they attack. Armed with the promise of God's victory. They take off and they march all night to the fight. Now as someone who's marched all night to a fight. I'm telling you that's exhausting. And, and the wording leads me to believe they, they arrive just at daylight. And they pick the fight. Now part of what I think we should see in this. Is they haven't prepared for this night mission by napping, right? So if I'm reading this properly, and I think I am, of course, because I'm teaching it, they've gone through their day and it's come close to night and they're getting ready to bed down for the night. And the messenger arrives the enemies are here. You come help us. God seeks Joshua, God, Joshua seeks God. God says, I'm going to give you victory, go. And rather than going to bed, they pick up and they march all night to a fight. And then they arrive just at daylight and they begin to fight. And they fight all day, literally all day. They fight so long the sun starts to set. And that's a long day. They've been up a day, they've marched a night, they've fought a day. And the sun starts to set, but the the battle isn't over. Because Joshua asked God to make the sun stand still. And they continue to fight all day. In light of what we see in verse 13, that the sun hastened not to go out for about a whole day. It seems they fought for another entire day. This means they have fought for probably somewhere around 48 hours without stopping. And this is after being up all day the day before and marching all night. And keep in mind, they fought with swords and clubs and spears and shields. This is some of the most brutal, exhausting, hand-to-hand combat imaginable. Think about how exhausted MMA-type fighters are after one match lasting maybe 20 or 30 minutes. Imagine... Close to 48 hours of that same kind of fighting without any breaks for the rounds. To say that would be exhausting is an understatement. Furthermore, this type of fighting is painful even if you win. Now, it's not as painful as it is for the losers, but still it is painful. And if you look at verse 16-27, which we're not going to read, it just details all they did. Right? So the kings flee and they pursue and they lock up the kings in a cave and they go through and they chop people up and they kill them. And then they get the kings after they've killed everybody and they bring the kings out. Joshua has the leaders to come and step on the necks of the kings while they're alive. And then he tells them to be, bear not, be not dismayed, be strong and of a good courage. Then he takes them and kills them and hangs them in a tree. And then the sun goes down and they toss them back in the caves where the kings initially hid. Can you imagine how exhausted they must have been? How much effort they put forth into this victory. Now, again, this is a God victory, right? Because God killed more of the hailstones than they killed with a sword. But they still had to fight. They had this great promise God would make them win decisively. God acted massively on their behalf by making hailstones fall from heaven. God acted massively on their behalf by extending the daylight. But in order to experience the victory, they still had to fight really, really hard. And for a very, very long time. So the lesson for us is we should expect to have to work hard as disciples of Jesus. It is hard work to follow Jesus. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. It's hard work. It's hard work to move forward following Jesus, to do things, to change, to adapt to what's going on. It's hard work to reach the lost. How many of you know lost people aren't just sitting out in their houses waiting for us to come by and ask them if they know Jesus? How many of us know you can share the Gospel with someone time and time and time again and they still don't see a need for it. Discipling someone takes hard work. A new believer helping them to grow in the faith. Being holy. It's hard work to crucify the flesh day after day. To walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. To to choose to flee temptations. Spiritual warfare is hard work. Being an intercessor is hard work. How many of you know having a healthy marriage is, is hard work? I mean, not for me, but for everybody else that's not married to Kelly, it's hard work. Well, actually, it's really it's not hard for Kelly because of me, but. Raising godly kids. I mean, right? Trouble. Hard work. Having a solid understanding of Scripture. Knowing what it means and what it meant and how it applies and not twisting it or taking it out of context. It's hard work. Following Jesus is hard work. And the promises for God of God for our life and the power of God in our life does not free us from hard work. And if we think it does, we will never really accomplish anything for Jesus. We will not be disciples. We will not reach the lost. We will not be intercessors. We will not we will not do anything. Because everything worth doing Even the things where God has given promises and God is going to act on our behalf require hard work on our behalf. When the battles we face are more than we can handle, we have to be ready to do the hard work to fight and win the battles. Because the promises of God for our life and the power of God in our life does not in any way free us from hard work. Someone ask you right now, are you in a spot where it feels like you're fighting to move forward? Do you feel overwhelmed by the magnitude of the battle you're facing as you try to move forward? And if so, you may wonder what to do when the battle you face is more than you can handle. What do we do when the battle we face is more than we can handle? Well, What we learn from Joshua is we continue to move forward, trusting in God's promises and anticipating God's power. Battle being hard is not a way to stop and not a reason to stop. We just continue to move forward. We trust His promises. We anticipate His power. And we keep going. Now throughout the message I've mentioned. The battle being partially our fault. Because it was partially Joshua's fault. They would have had to fight these people anyway. But fighting them all at one time was the direct result of their compromise with Gibeah. And the reality is there are times when our bad decisions make our spiritual warfare more intense. They add to the feeling being overwhelmed. Nothing, nothing makes me feel overwhelmed hardly any more than it being my fault. My own stupidity making my life difficult is far more frustrating than someone else's stupidity making my life difficult. It being partially, at least, our fault adds to it being overwhelmed because it leaves us with a feeling of condemnation and a sense God is going to leave us. We don't deserve God's help this time. This feeling and this sense comes from Satan and not God. God was there to help Joshua to renew His promise and deliver him through His power the overwhelming battle you're facing is partially or completely your fault don't believe the enemy's lie jesus christ is your advocate with the father jesus christ is the one who was righteous in your place jesus christ has already paid the penalty for your sins jesus christ is the reason there is no condemnation for you not now not ever So rather than believing the enemy's lies and suffering in silence or succumbing to defeat or just being overwhelmed, call on Jesus. Seek His grace and mercy. Recommit yourself to Him. And once you've called on Jesus and recommitted yourself to Him, continue to move forward trusting God's promises and anticipating God's power. Let's pray.